Grace and peace to you. I'm Vicar Derek Kabilis, and this is Exile Cast for Tuesday, the 15th of February, in the year of our Lord 2022. Now, before we get started today, I really want to encourage you to start preparing your heart and your mind for the season of Lent. Now, truth be told, Lent itself does not begin until Ash Wednesday, March 2nd, but it always seems to kind of catch folks unaware, you know, it sneaks up on them, and this year I just want to give you a heads up while it's still a couple weeks away so that you can start thinking about how you want to mark this holy season. Lent is the holiest time of the Christian year. Yes, it is 40 days that we spend preparing our hearts for the resurrection of Christ on Easter, but it's also a time to just sort of get our spiritual houses in order. I know a lot of folks give up chocolate or pop or go eat fish on Fridays during Lent, stuff like that, and honestly, that's all fine, but Lent was never supposed to be just about giving up one small, silly thing for 40 days. Lent was originally about taking stock of your life, taking a good hard look at yourself, examining where you're at, what you're doing, how you're feeling, what's going on with your spirit and your relationships, and making changes to get yourself back on the path that you think God is calling you toward. Yes, fasting is a part of that. Some folks, especially Catholics, don't eat meat during Lent. Some folks do give up uh, chocolate or sex or whatever it is, and that's all good. But the point of fasting The point of self-denial is to make space in your life. You take something out that isn't that necessary so that you can put something in that is helpful. Does that make sense? Early members of the Methodist movement in the 18th century fasted uh, twice a week often. They would fast for a meal, and then they would take the time that they would have spent eating and they would do something like go visit a prisoner or someone who was sick in the hospital, something like that. Or they would donate the money that they would have spent on that food to the poor, essentially giving up a meal so that someone else could have one. Do you see how that works? Making space, taking something out, and then filling that void with something good. 
Now, your situation might be different. You know, theoretically, if you're someone who eats breakfast every day, I'm not much of a breakfast guy myself, but if you eat breakfast every day, one thing you could do is fast from breakfast either one or two days a week or say every day <laughs> and choose instead to have a prayer time or to read a spiritual book for 20 minutes every morning instead or maybe just maybe you have something in your life not like eating breakfast or anything like that. It's something in your life that you know is specifically bad for you. There's nothing necessarily wrong with eating breakfast or chocolate. Or even eating chocolate for breakfast, if you do it in moderation, for that matter. But let's say that you, you know you got something in your life that is actually bad for you. Drinking too much, smoking, gambling. Maybe you play the lottery every week and just waste your money. Maybe you watch too much TV or, or spend too much time playing video games or even spend hours and hours reading fluffy, pulpy fiction that, that may as well be trashy television. Well, then... You don't want to fast from those things. Fasting is temporary. What you want to do is you want to use Lent as a period to start letting them go all together. We all have those things that we know aren't very helpful to us. Those things that actually make us worse, that add darkness and difficulty to our lives. They're called vices. And we're always waiting for just the right time to give them up, you know? Today isn't the right day. This isn't the right week. Next month, after I get through the busy season, then I'll do it. Da-da-da-da-da. And it goes on and on that way. Well, Lent comes to say, now's the time. Now is the time. We also have a lot of stuff going on at church for those who want to add some spirituality to their lives during Lent. We're going to be having a Thursday night uh, prayer and communion service at 8 p.m. Um, we're going to have a Wednesday night book study on Zoom led by Reverend Dale. It's going to be on a book about the Ten Commandments. Uh, Wednesday morning Bible study on the book of Genesis. Essentially, no matter what your schedule or your availability is like, if you get our newsletter, you go to our Facebook page, whatever, I can almost guarantee that you're going to find something that works with your life. So think about adding some church to it during Lent. And finally, let me say Lent is also for something else. There were two categories of folks who took Lent very seriously in the ancient church. The first were those who were waiting to be baptized on Easter Sunday. Easter was a very popular day for baptisms with the resurrection of Christ and all that. And candidates for baptism would often spend 
the 40 days of Lent in intense study and prayer as they prepared to receive the mystery of baptism in their lives and devote themselves to a spiritual community. Lent was also important, however, for those who were seeking reconciliation to the church. For those who had left the church or those who had been asked to leave through excommunication, which we don't really do anymore, Lent was a time for them to reflect on that and to start repairing their relationships with fellow church members and with the church as a whole. It was a time to to come back to worship, to say you're sorry if you needed to, to, to rehabilitate the baptismal vows that we all take, right? People forget that we take vows at our baptism to support the church by our prayers, presence, gifts, service, and witness. All five of those things, we vowed to do that. And sometimes relationships with churches break off, and there are reasons for that. But sometimes, sometimes we're just not attentive to the vows we've made. And so we need to rehabilitate that relationship not to the church as an institution but thinking about the church as a community of friends brothers sisters siblings folks to whom we need to be reconciled in this last year just about every congregation has struggled mightily (laughs) with attendance and giving and those kinds of things. And whether you attend Uniontown or some other church, if you know you've fallen off track, if you know you just haven't made worship a priority in your life, you haven't been tithing, you haven't been connecting with the people that used to mean so much to you and to whom you probably meant quite a bit as well, believe it or not. Well, if that's you, then I want to make an invitation to you to come on home. Do whatever it is you need to do. Set that alarm clock. Have the difficult conversations. Pray for the courage and the power to forgive. Whatever you do, Whatever you think needs to be done in order to make it happen, just make your way back to where you belong. You know, none of us knows where the future leads. Maybe that's the great lesson of 2020, 21, and 22, none of us knows what's going to happen in the future. None of us can count on what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day or the day after that. So this Lent, let's make the best of our lives 
here and now. This is the time. Stay tuned, friends. We've got quite a sermon coming up for you today. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke, the fifth chapter. Once, while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret, and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats such that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. God. Amen. Please be seated. I wish to preach to you today from the title, Confessions of a Worm Killer. Confessions of a Worm Killer. Please pray with me. And now, most holy and merciful God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O God, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. For some reason, I can still remember what I think was my very first fishing lesson. I was maybe five or six years old, and I was camping with my family out on by a lake somewhere. I don't remember where it was, uh, but we were camping with my parents and my grandma and grandpa, and my grandfather took me fishing out on the dock. 
And I was excited because my brother always got to go fishing with Grandpa because they would go out on the break walls of Lake Erie and, and I was too young and uh, klutzy to be walking out there on all those rocks. But finally, here on this lake in this dock, I would learn how to fish just like my grandpa. So the first lesson was how to bait the hook. He said, okay, now get yourself one of those worms from that box of dirt over there. So I picked out a worm and grandpa said, oh, now that's a little too big for your hook. So what you'll need to do is to tear it in half. Well, that was pretty gross. But when you're five or six, gross things are kind of cool. So I tore it in half and I went to put the worm back in the dirt. But Grandpa stopped me. He said, whoa there, hold on. Don't just put an injured worm back in the dirt. It'll bleed all over the place and the rest of the worms will get sick and die. Just put it there on the lid and I'll use it. So I dutifully did as I was told. And the lessons continued how to cast, how to use the reel, how to untangle the line, and so forth. Well, at some point, I think I got a little bite on my hook, but I didn't set it right, and the darn fish got away with my worm. And so Grandpa said, okay, now go fetch another worm, and I'll use the other half. So I got another worm from the box of dirt, and again, it was too long. So I tore it in half and baited my hook, and before I knew it, I was casting my line. And then a couple minutes later, my grandpa from behind me said, Hey, where's the other half of that worm? I thought, wait, what, what did I do with it? My mind started racing. Did I put it on the lid like I was supposed to? Did I drop it or did I? I put it back in the dirt. The one thing I wasn't supposed to do. Now I just knew that worm would bleed and bleed and, and kill all the other worms and, and I would never go fishing with Grandpa again. And so in that moment, right there, I could have done one of two things. I could have come clean, right? I could have just admitted that I had made the mistake, and, and Grandpa might have been kind of mad, but we could have gone in there, we could have found the worm, it wasn't a big bucket of dirt, and, and everything might have been okay. I could have done that. Or I could do something stupid. I chose the latter. I said, oh, uh, yeah, actually, I, I found a nice small worm, so I didn't have to tear that one in half. He said, okay, and just got back to fishing. And I started to melt on the inside. I felt like my soul was being torn in two. All I could think was, why did I say that? Why did I lie? And uh, maybe I should come clean again, but it's like I, even more pressure. Like, no, don't tell him you lied too. 
There's another part of me that's saying, you know, Grandpa might get mad if he finds out about this. And then I'm thinking, well, he might be mad when all his worms are dead. Yeah, but we'll have plausible deniability. Yeah, but he was so nice to me. And all I did was kill his worms and then lie to his face about it. And then another part of me said, listen, don't say anything and everything will be just fine. Spoiler alert, everything was not fine. My heart was racing, my stomach turned sour, I felt like I was going to burst into tears, so I told my grandpa I wasn't feeling well, and then I ran back, hid in the camper, and wept. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. Guilt is such a powerful emotion, you know? It's such a potent force in our lives that, that sometimes when we feel it, it's really hard to feel anything else at all. Have you ever felt that way before? That, that, that stomach-wrenching, heart-pounding feeling that you did something wrong? The, the, the soul-saturating, spirit-corroding culpability just rotting you from the inside out. It's such that when you feel guilty, when you feel really and truly guilty, you'll do almost anything to stop it to resolve it, to numb it, to escape from it. We'll avoid people to stop the guilt. We'll end relationships. We'll walk away from churches and families and jobs. We will hide away in shame. We'll even do things that we know will just make us have more guilt tomorrow just because they might help us escape the power of it today. And that, friends, is what makes guilt such a powerful tool of manipulation. Christianity has a rough relationship with guilt. Amen? I can't tell you how many Christians, uh, former Christians, I've spoken to over the years, that when I ask them why they left the church, they say, well, it was the guilt. Every time I walked into the place, it, I, I, it seemed like I just walked out feeling guilty about what I do with my life, my money, in my bedroom, what I believe, what I don't believe, what I should believe, and on and on. That's why I think that Christians have gotten this reputation over the years, right? For being guilt mongers, as it were. Have you ever heard that before? There's a case to be made historically that the church conquered a substantial portion of the known world using almost nothing but the power of guilt the fear of punishment. 
There's a way of reading history to see all the ways that lay and clergy alike have used something like laser-targeted guilt to maintain a level of control over people's lives, and along with it, a level of control over things like culture and even government. So what do we do then? For those of us who don't want to live in a church based on guilt, those of us who who feel guilty for making other people feel guilty, how do we fix this ruinous state of affairs? I have no idea. The problem is big. And to a certain extent, it's, it's beyond my pay grade. But let me say what I think we should not do. It's not as easy as simply saying, well, we just shouldn't allow people to feel guilty anymore. Anything that makes people feel guilty, we should just take away. We, we shouldn't just roll out some kind of new kind of Christianity, new church Same great Christ, less guilt. (laughs) It doesn't work that way because the temptation will still be there. Like drugs, the problem is not that guilt doesn't work. The problem is that it works really, really well. So well, in fact, that it might just ruin your life. Now, what I think we need to realize first is that there's actually something good buried deep within guilt. Not the guilt itself, but but the the seed that, that, that somehow we nourish into guilt. The, the, the seed at the center of it, the kernel, the infrastructure that it's all built upon is actually something different. The church calls that thing contrition. Have you ever heard of contrition before? Contrition comes from the Latin. And it literally means um, to grind something down or to rub something away. It was the word that they used to use for all kinds of things like polishing metal or filing rust off of an old sword, sharpening a knife, or even, as is most familiar with us these days, scraping ice off of a road. Essentially, contrition is the recognition that there is something that has accumulated, that whatever's underneath is good, Whatever is underneath works and it's holy and we should appreciate it, but over top of it, there has something, there has been something that has been built up, that has been concretized. And there is some kind of abrasion that's necessary in order to remove it. I say that contrition is actually a very holy thing because whether you're talking about rust or lime scale or ice or just regular old sin, 
what you're talking about is something that impedes a movement. Something that gets in the way of a flow and prevents something from working according to the beauty and the grace with which it was first conceived and defined. A dull, rusty knife. A pipe that's clogged with hair and calcium. A sidewalk covered in snow. A guilt-ridden spirit. They all need an abrasion. They all need the recognition that something has built up in a desire to, to clean it off, yank it out, rub it away, and restore the flow that was always meant to be there. When Isaiah has his vision of coming into the very throne room of God, you get the sense that something is trying to move inside of him. Something wants to get out, but it's impeded. And his very first words, oh, it's so sad, but his very first words upon gazing on the fullness of God and, and all that glory with his own two eyes, the first thing he says is, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I come from a people of unclean lips. The pure, undiluted righteousness of God highlights the blockage that exists within Isaiah. Isaiah has a clog. And it's that glory that lets him see it. Likewise, when Peter sees Jesus perform this amazing miracle, he too is moved with a kind of contrition, that, that kernel, that seed he too can see that there's a problem in his life, that, that he's got some gunk built up around the edges, that, that, that he's got some rust going on, but his move is different. Peter transfers that contrition into shame. Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Do you see the difference there? Isaiah continues to stand in front of the throne, acknowledging that, that he needs to be fixed, acknowledging that, that he needs that abrasion, but Peter wants to hide. Peter wants to go running back to the camper. Peter recognizes there a problem, there's a problem, but he just wants to cover it up like someone who puts a tarp over an old, rusty Lincoln sitting in their driveway. That's a joke for those of you that go out back. But thanks be to God. <laughs> he finds out that Jesus has been aware of the problem altogether and that he's already started fixing it. Do not be afraid. 
From now on, you will be catching people. The problem is not so much that Paul or that Peter feels guilty or that he feels contrition. The problem is that he lets it turn into fear. And he lets that fear get in the way of his relationship with Jesus. But Jesus doesn't let him hide. Jesus doesn't let Peter wallow in his guilt. Jesus is going to restore the flow in Jesus in Peter's life. Have you ever had a really bad plumber come to your house? You have a stopped up drain or a simple leak somewhere and then they walk in hours late, they trapes mud all over the carpet, they take a look at it, and tell you it's going to be thousands of dollars, you got to replace this and that and, and so on and so forth. And then you bring in a better plumber and it turns out all you needed was a good plunging, right? In the very worst of its history, the church has been a really bad plumber. That's how we've gotten our influence into our money, how we have fleeced the world for our own benefit century after century after century by dragging mud in and telling people that we know the solution and it's going to cost so much. So then let me be clear once and for all, the church is not a plumber. I may have a certain shape to me, but I am not a plunger, okay? I cannot fix the pipes of your heart. You let me in there and sewage will start pouring out of your kitchen sink. The church gets into problems when we convince ourselves that we know just how to fix it. Because the truth is, we don't. But we know a guy. We know a guy who can spot the problem. We know a guy who has the tools and the know-how to, to get our lives flowing again. And he may not come cheap. And the whole thing may hurt a little bit. And he may be around a lot longer than you were anticipating. But friends, the job will get done. Our job is just to make the introduction. I remember my mom came into the camper to find me. I covered my tear-soaked face with a pillow because I, I was choosing shame. She told me to tell her what the problem was, and I told her the whole story, and she said, well, it's no use just sitting here crying. Why don't you get up and tell him? He ain't going to hurt you. You see what she did there? That's what the church is supposed to be doing. We're supposed to ask what seems to be the problem and then give the assurance that you can go tell him. He's not going to hurt you, right? 
So I got up, I went to my grandpa, I felt like I was going to burst into flames right in front of him, and I blurted it out, and I said, I'm sorry, I killed your worms. He said, we were fishing. That's the whole point. I said, no, no, I, 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 I tore the worm in half and I put it back in the dirt and, and, and now they're all going to die. He said, that bucket of worms cost $1.75 and you were going to spend all day crying in the camper? When you finally talk to the guy who can fix the problem, you find out it wasn't nearly as big of a deal as you thought it was. And the long and short of it, what I did was wrong. I made a mistake and then I lied about it. But when compared to the relationship I had with my grandfather and the rest of my family, compared to the rest of the things I was missing out on, to the the trip I was supposed to be having, it just wasn't a big deal. I guess I needed someone bigger and smarter than me to tell me that. That night, we went fishing again at sundown. Friends, contrition is hard. Confession is hard. It makes us want to sever our relationships, cover ourselves in shame, hide from the ones who love us most. But God doesn't seek shame. God doesn't seek punishment. God isn't interested in making you feel bad for the choices you've made. God knows you feel about, bad about them already. God just wants you to let him clear them away. In short, all God wants is to help us get things moving again. These words I offer to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And now, my friends, as you go forward into your day or your evening or whatever it is that's just ahead of you, I want you to take with you the difference between shame and contrition. Contrition is good. Contrition is the recognition that something has gone wrong. It's the regret and the sorrow for having played a role in it. And, and this is the important part, contrition is the willingness to do the sometimes hard and painful work of setting things right. Shame, however, is the opposite of all that. Where contrition comes forward, shame runs. Where contrition 
confronts the wrongs that have been done. Shame hides. Shame lies and covers up and dissimulates. Shame keeps the infection cold and dark and wet. Contrition cleans the wound, dries it out, and gets it some sun. Friends, shame festers. Contrition heals. And now may the love of God the Father, the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you and be with you, now and always. Amen.